0: check out the excitement in TJ's walk. That is because Saturday is the day. Him and uh, Holly are scheduled to be married next Saturday, so we look forward to that. Less than a week. All right, <laughs> All right. well, um, you know, growing up, that Highlights Magazine, you know, you found in the doctor's office, the, the one good thing about going to the doctor's office back then. Yeah. <laughs> they would always have them there. And one of, one of my favorite things in there was the, the, when they would zoom in on everyday objects, you know, and you had to try to figure out what it was. They'd zoom in on, say, like the, um, the stem of an apple or the, the head of a, a little match. You know, and all of a sudden it looks like this big ball of red with craters in it. And you're like, what in the world is that? Or on the, on the pages of a book. Did so they zoom in and suddenly the, the object that you see every day, it's confusing. You don't know what it is. It's hard to tell what's going on. And then, of course, once they zoom out, it's like, oh, yeah, that, that's what that is. OK, that's what the object is. Uh, last week in Chapter 1, we met our characters, our main characters of the book, uh, especially Ruth and Naomi. Naomi. Uh, Ruth being a Moabite, an outsider, an outcast, who has traded allegiance and come to Israel with Naomi. Naomi is now a widow. They're both widows. And if you remember, Naomi is a bitter woman at the end of the book. Uh, TJ uh, read that for us. Uh, She even wants to be identified as Mara. Call me bitter. I'm broken and bitter. And why, if you remember, uh, her perspective was that God's hand was against her. So she, she had the zoomed-in vision of what's happening. All she could see the, was the dark bitterness, the pain, but she couldn't see the bigger picture, right, of what's going on, that the providence of God and how he's moving the story, God's invisible hand. Well, this week we actually get to zoom out a little bit for her and help her see, or we're going to see her uh, helpfully see that her story is, is a part of a bigger story, a part of a story of God's redemption. And there's going to be a little bit of spark in this uh, bitter woman uh, by the end of our passage. So let's we'll walk through the passage and reflect on it like normal. Um, we'll, do, we'll read uh, verses one to three at the beginning here. This, is this one, the, the beginning part, that is packed with information. We got to catch so the rest of the story uh, kind of makes sense. There we read now. Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech All right, so we've got to spend a little bit of time here and make sure we have all this information that we need here. So we're introduced to a new character in verse 1. Now, interestingly enough, the author withholds the name of the character because that's not as important as who the man is. So we're given two key elements here of who this man is. First of all, he's a relative of uh, Naomi's husband, uh, deceased husband, Elimelech. Now, that's going to become apparent or important uh, later in the story, uh, especially because a close relative would be one that would help a family member in distress. So family is the place where you're going to find help, uh, and even still today, a little bit, right? But there was actually laws for this, these ideas of redemption uh, that God would uh, care for his people through family members. And so that's going to be very important. But what good is it, anyways, if you have a family member who can get involved in your financial business? I mean, frankly, we probably all have some family members that we'd rather them stay out of that, even if we are in family or financial distress, right? So the next key information is that he's a worthy man. He's not just simply a relative, but he's a worthy man. Here we have two Hebrew words uh, being used that get pulled into one here one uh, tends to have this idea of this his social status he's he's either a man of of valor or a man of uh, supply he's a man in the community that that has resources and the second seems to indicate more of his character you might say he, he is the upstanding man of the community the one that people look to for care and sustenance so we're just introduced to that it's not really carrying along the story it's just kind of on the side and the narrator tells us this information. Now Ruth doesn't know this information. Naomi doesn't. Or Naomi knows this information, but it's not like she's had conversation with him. At least, that, not, that we're, not that we're told. So now the narrative moves forward uh, in verse two. Then, and we meet Ruth once again. But what gets highlighted is her social status. Now that happens actually throughout the book. Ruth is named uh, twelve times throughout the book. Uh, six of those times uh, are indicating. Who she was, not just she not her name, but she was a Moabite. She was a foreigner. Five of those times, in particular, she's called Ruth the Moabite, which the author does here for us uh, Ruth the Moabite. The author does not want us to forget that she's an outcast, she's an outsider. And remember, Moab never had good dealings with Israel up until this point in uh, redemption, re- redemption history. So we talked about that last week, remember. Uh, So the author just wants to keep that on the forefront. Here's this this Moabite widow in Israel. Now she has a plan, because she's, remember, now uh, the caretaker, essentially, of Naomi, the bitter widow, who's come back to Israel. So she's got a plan, and her plan is now to go find a field where she can glean. So it's barley harvest, as we saw at the end of chapter 1. So they're harvesting the grain. Uh, Now there's the harvesters... Those are hired workers, right? So uh, someone, if you owned a field, you would hire, go out, hire some workers. They would go through the the grain and grab grain, slice it up and kind of make these bundles, and then it would eventually be threshed for you, right? You'd have all your grain. The hired worker is one type of of person in the field. The other person would be these gleaners. The gleaner actually provides no uh, labor for the owner of the field because the owner of the field gets nothing from the gleaner. The gleaner is actually the poor people in the community. So the people that were actually in the the Israelite law, the law code that God had given, was a way to care for the poor. Specifically, uh, generally speaking, it would be the widow, the, uh, uh, what do you you call the uh, kids with no dad? uh, Yeah, orphan, thank you. Or or the foreigner, right? And so Ruth here is, is two of those. She's a widow and she's a foreigner. So the way it works is uh, as the, the harvesters go through to thresh or to, to uh, harvest the grain, they were not to go all the way to the edge in the corners of the field. So you kind of leave a little bit of the field for the, the gleaners to come through and harvest. And, it, you know, once they go through once, they cut it. If, if there's stragglers there, they need to leave them. Or if, as they're putting them into piles in some falls, they have to leave that. And so anything that kind of falls on the ground, that's all left to the gleaners to come behind the harvesters, and they get what they get. If there's a lot, they get a lot. If there's hardly anything, they don't get anything. And kids, you might think of it this way. Some of you probably went to a parade this week, right? It would be sort of like this, you know, that, that somebody takes a load of candy, they throw it out to all the kids, all the kids run out, and your parents say, you get one grab at it, that's it. Right, and you grab as much you can in your hands, and whatever's left, you have to leave for the little, little kids, right? Because the big kids can't take all the candy. You got to leave it for some of the little ones to come through, right? And so that's what you have going on out in the field. Uh, Ruth says, look, how else are we going to make it? I got to find some sort of food. We need provision of something. I will go out in the field and glean. Now her hope there, we're introduced to a key word of the passage in verse 2. She says, uh, let me go into the field and glean among the ears of the grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Uh, this is a key word in the chapter. This chapter is the only chapter with that word in it. Uh, verse 3, verse 10, and verse 13, this idea of favor. Uh, and there's actually only one chapter of the Bible that uses this word more than this chapter does, uh, which is Exodus 33. So the author is clearly highlighting this idea of favor. And Ruth is saying, I need to go out and find a field and God willing, someone will extend favor to me. Typically, uh, or the, the majority of the time this word is used, it's connected with this idea of uh, favor in the eyes of someone. It's usually from a superior to an inferior, right? It's, it's, I need to find favor. I need someone to look well upon me and treat me well because I'm in distress. I need help. And so I need favor from someone. So that's her plan and that's her hope is that she will go out And that will happen Uh, and then we have uh, the plan is granted by naomi she says go now you have to realize at the end of the passage we'll see that naomi tells uh, ruth to stay in that field because otherwise she might be assaulted so what ruth is doing is actually very very dangerous for a woman to do that's their only hope like they don't have a good option but it's very high uh, percentage uh, that she will be assaulted in the field. She's one of the most vulnerable people in the community. And we all know uh, that people love to have power over people. It's just what it is. People are sinners. You've probably seen different studies that they've done where they kind of separate people and they give this group a little bit of power and it's just a matter of hours before the oppression starts. And here you have one of the most vulnerable people in the community uh, and it was known that they would be assaulted And if you read the prophets, that was one of the the, uh, judgments against Israel, oftentimes, is that you aren't caring for the widow, or you're uh, you're treating them harshly, You're not giving them justice. Instead, you're you're taking advantage of them and oppressing them. But Naomi has no other choice, so she says go. And plus, as you saw at the last chapter, she's she's bitter and perhaps depressed. She, She really doesn't know what to do, so she lets Ruth go out. Uh, but we see in verse 3 uh, that her, Ruth's plan actually meets providence. Now, Ruth doesn't know this, right? Here's where the author says, so she sat out in verse 3, went to the, and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Moses Boaz. She just happened to be there. Now, of course, he's talking from the perspective of Ruth. Because when Ruth went out, she doesn't know where to go. There's just basically this these, these long uh, geographical place of all just fields. And they're all connected. She doesn't know whose field she's even going in. It's not like they have a sign right there that says, any, uh, any gleaners, don't come here because you'll be assaulted. And then this one says, gleaners are welcome. We will treat you kindly. That's not, that's not how this works, right? She's just going to go and hope that she lands in the right field. Now, as the reader, we know that, oh, wait, okay, she was in the field of boys. Oh, this, this could be good, because this, this is probably a good field, right? So it starts to set the anticipation of the reader. Uh, but this is the way the author is saying, it just so happened. Now, as the reader and as followers of Christ, if you are here as that, uh, we know what the author is really saying. God's hand is under that and over that. It's a similar way we might talk. We might just say, and what are the chances of that? Of course God was in it. There's a story. I saw this years ago. uh, A World War II uh, tail gunner. He was in a a bomber jet thing where they would go on these missions. His name was Nicholas Alkamad. And it was 1944, World War II. And uh, his crew, they had they had successfully uh, completed 14 missions or whatever and they went off on a mission and they were coming back and there was some bad weather that they couldn't go the the route that they were planning and they had to go a different route where they knew that there was oftentimes um, anti-jet you know weapons there but they had no other choice so they had to go and sure enough their their bomber gets hit now he's a tail gunner so he's in the back of the plane and uh, the one of the wings uh, was blown off and the the plane starts doing a tailspin. Now the pilot gets on and says, everybody, everybody out, get your chutes and jump. Right? Now he's in the tail, tail gunner position, so he doesn't have a parachute because it's a very small contraption back there. He has to get out of his little uh, closet, we'll say, and go get his parachute, which is outside uh, in the plane. So he opens his door and the whole thing was in flames. And so he immediately feels the heat, and he's feeling singed, so he closes the door. And he realizes, as the heat keeps coming closer, the door is getting really hot. He said, uh, I guess part of his clothes were inflamed, and he he said, you know, it's either I jump, I don't have a parachute, or I burn to death. But either way, it's happening. I don't have a choice. So he said, well, I think I'd rather jump and die that way than die with burning. So he... He turned his tail gunner thing a little bit and he just kind of went backwards and he starts his free fall. And as he goes down, he looks up and he sees the plane explode uh, up in the air. And wouldn't you know that he just happened to land in pine trees and 18 inches of snow? He blacked out and woke up three hours later, a couple bruises, a couple cuts, his knee was a little bit twisted. Nothing broken. And he walked away. Now, he was eventually captured by the, the Germans, and the story was corrob What do you say, corroborated? Corroborated? I'm using big words today here. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was legit. Now, his boots blew off as he was flying in the air. Uh, so he, he, when he got up, his feet were freezing. He's standing in 18 inches of snow. And he looks over, and he sees about 20 yards over, there's no snow. It's just an open path, the sun had come down. So he goes over and stands on it, and it dawns on him, man, if I was 20 yards over, I was dead. Now, we hear that story, and your first thought is like, what are the chances of that? Obviously, there's something out there that's going to protect him, right? I mean, many people that don't believe in God are going to have that kind of reading on that story. It's not just chance that those things, sort of things happen. Now that's, I, I think, how we're supposed to read this part of the story, as the Hebrew actually says, And her chance chanced. It just so happened that God has led her to that field. Continuing on in verse 4 then, now we have all the material that we need to move forward. Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, who would be the, the harvesters, "'The Lord bless you, or be with you.' And they answered, "'The Lord bless you.' Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, who would be like a a foreman or the boss, "'Whose young woman is this?' And the servant in charge of the reapers answered, "'She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab.' She said, "'Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers.' So she came." And she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Now, only just notice here the way that the boss refers to Naomi. He doesn't actually, or to Ruth, he doesn't even name her there, right? It's just, oh, that's that young Moabite woman who came with Naomi from Moab, right? Many think that he's intentionally trying to paint her in a bad light here, right? Uh, Verse 8, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now, here is where I think would be an intense moment. Because Ruth, remember, she does not know who Boaz is. All she knows now is that this man who owns the field is about to speak to her. This is the absolute superior speaking to the inferior. She does not know what he's going to say. Maybe he's calling her over to uh, kick her out of the field. Maybe he's calling her over to frame her, to take her and abuse her. Like These were common things that would be happening. So she doesn't know. I would think that this is an intense moment. What's he going to say to me? And Boaz speaks to her, breaks down the barrier immediately. Now listen, my daughter, do not go in glean in another field or leave this one, but you keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Now, this is amazing, right? Because her, she's assuming possibly, I I might be assaulted here any minute. I don't know what's going to happen. But what does Boaz do? But he actually provides for her, provides water for her and protection, says, "I, I pledge to you, these men are not going to touch you. And of course, verse 10 then, it's understandable why she responds the way she does. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and she said to him, Why have I found favor? There's our word. Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? There again, she knows her social place, her social status. She's saying, look, I, I, just, I just jumped out of the plane. I didn't know where I was going to land. and how, how in the world did I land here? And You put snow under me to catch me. Why are you doing this? I don't deserve this. This isn't what normally happens. And verse 11. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother in law since the death of her husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord will repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. In other words, he says, Look, I know who you are. You're the talk of the town. Everybody's talking about you. We all know what you did. You left your mother and your father and your your native land. You left everything. And you came to a people you didn't know. But even more than that, you traded your allegiance. You you gave away, you, you turned away from the gods of Moab, and you have come to seek shelter here under Yahweh. He uses this picture of under the wings of Yahweh. YouTube is a great thing because you can kind of you can type. Like, it can also be very dangerous, but it's a good thing if you just type in "birds protecting their young with their wings." So I was watching this the other day, and you can watch these moms care for these babies. One, uh, it started raining, so the mom jumped on the babies, and the mom's getting hit with all this rain and the wind, protecting the babies. And babies are safe under there; they're not even getting wet. Another time, it was really sunny out, and the, kind of the, the way the tree was, the, the, the babies were just baking in the sun, so the mom comes over, and she just stands there like this, just to block the sun, so the babies not, aren't getting scorched. And then another one, this, I, I, I don't know, like snakes, but I watched it anyways. The snake comes up, and it starts to, to go after one of the babies, and it opens its mouth, and the mom goes, wah, 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 with the wings, and scared away the snake. This is the idea, though. This is the word picture that's being used here. God, God is the one who has got wings, and he cares for his young under, under the wings of God. And Boaz is saying, you have left your land to come under the wings of Yahweh, where you will find protection and care and provision. We all know about it, Ruth. You have come to seek care here. And continuing on, verse 13. Then she said, I I found favor in your eyes. There's our word again. I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me. You've spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not even one of your servants. I'm a gleaner. There again, Ruth recognizing exactly where she stands. I do not deserve any of this. I'm not, I'm not even one of your hired workers. And you have treated me like this. And so the day continues, the work continues, they go on, and eventually we'll see now it's time for a meal. And wouldn't you know it, but Boaz is such an upstanding character that the owner actually eats with the employees. So he gathers his employees, the reapers, and they gather for a meal. And on his way, he scoops someone else up for the meal. And, but who was it but the reaper, or the uh, gleaner? The Moabite. Verse 14, at the mealtime, Boaz said to Ruth, You come here, eat some bread, dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. Now, we can so quickly read over that as if it's not a big deal. And probably none of us have really experienced the hunger and the lack of good, uh, nutritious, sustaining meal uh, the way Ruth has. I mean, she's been widowed now for a season. Uh, They had to travel all the way from Moab, and they don't have the ability to provide for themselves. So probably the closest that many of us have gotten is when you lived away at college maybe, right? And you ate nothing but ramen noodles and things like that, and you come home. Are are you raising your hand, TJ, because you're still doing that? (laughs) she's waiting for a good no you come home no you do eat good I've seen some you come home and it's just it's so good to eat a nice fresh home baked meal and then they give you a take home bag right what's better than that this is what's happening This this is actually quite amazing here for Ruth she has a full meal satisfied and she has some left over This is nutritious. This is being provided for beyond what any gleaner would ever dream of. She has a real meal. verse 15 then, Ruth goes back out to glean and Boaz now has a sit-down with the reapers. Let's make things clear, he says. He instructs his young men saying, Now, you let her glean among the sheaves And do not reproach her. Also, I want you to pull some out from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. And do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Now, what's happening here when he says, Let her glean among the sheaves, the sheaves are actually the bundle of, of the harvest. So you kind of have all these bundles of the harvest laying around the field. And normally the gleaners would stay behind the reapers as they come. They don't go among the sheaves. But he's so he's actually giving more, saying, Let her let her go among the bundles and find anything that falls out. Oh, and by the way, as you scoop some up and as you're cutting some, and you got some. Make sure to pull some out and just drop some there for her. This is way beyond what Ruth could ever dream of, or any gleaner. So much so that we're told that she took an ephah. How about that? (laughs) Well, your footnote says it's three-point, or three-fifths bushel. Does that help you? I guess the 22 liters, your footnote might say. So 22 liters, you probably, you know, two-liter bottle of soda or something, right? So it's, it's 11 of those, roughly, of grain. Now that is about, uh, roughly, for two women, that would be about a week's, uh, week's worth of food, possibly more. So a week kind of conservatively. That's way beyond what the harvesters even get. So the, the, the hired workers... So Ruth actually goes home. I mean, she did well in that field that day. Why? Because Boaz has dropped a, drop a ton for her. So she's going home carrying roughly 30-plus pounds worth of grain for these two women to eat. And now the, is the exciting part, because she's now going home, and uh, Naomi doesn't know what's happened. She doesn't know where she's gone. All she found, you, you can kind of picture Naomi, and she's maybe looking out the window every once in a while. Where is she? Where is she coming? How does she do? But she, perhaps she's a little nervous, too. Right? Because she knows, Ruth goes out, she might be assaulted. I might need to come and help dress wounds. So there's probably a mixture going on within her. Nervous? Excitement? We don't know. So this is, this is an intense moment. She comes home, verse 18, she took it went into the city, her mother-in-law. She seized what she had gleaned. And then Ruth also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied at the meal. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where in the world did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law, with whom she had worked, and she said, well, the man's, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Now, remember, Naomi, Naomi didn't know that. And Ruth actually doesn't know who Boaz is. She just knows that she worked with him. But you can see, all of a sudden, Naomi getting excited. Now her brain starts ticking. Boaz. Yes! This, the way I think about this as you're, watching, as you're reading it, and remember, the author has clued us in, so we, we should have this information, and we're reading this with anticipation because we want, we want to see the look on Naomi's face as she's finally realizing Boaz is caring for Ruth. It's sort of like if you, if you can go on uh, YouTube again and uh, do uh, announcement of pregnancies. To, I like the ones to the grandparents in particular. Because the grandparents, sometimes they take a long time to figure it out. So there's this one guy who's, they, they, give her, they give him a pregnancy test. He doesn't have his glasses on, so he was like, is this a thermometer? Thermometer? Why, why do I want a thermometer? And he keeps talking. Finally, he puts on his glasses. Whoa! Or there's just one where um, they play this game where they put headphones uh, on people, and then they, you, you try to mouth or say, say the words, and they try to, like, Lip read, you know, and so they got the the headphones on Grandma and Grandpa, and the the guy's really into it. And he say he say, I'm 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 going to the beach. I'm going to the beach. Oh, I'm go I'm going to I'm going to be I'm going to be I'm I'm going I'm going to be a father. I'm going to be a father. I'm going I'm going to be a grandfather. I'm going to be a grand. Ah, what what? And he goes crazy. This is, this is kind of this anticipation as you read it. As the reader, you see Naomi going crazy. Where did you go? Who, Boaz! And she responds, verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by Yahweh, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to, to Ruth, the man, that man, is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, that's the first time this word gets introduced, redeemers, 22 th- times throughout the book. So 21 more times. So the next two chapters, are gonna be, that's going to be big for us. The redeemer is the one who, who is called on to uh, redeem the land, or someone in financial distress is to care for the family. We'll get more into that uh, tomorrow, next week. But this is where it's introduced, but notice where Ruth, uh, or Naomi, says here, uh, may he be blessed by the Lord, that's referring to Boaz, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Um, there's a lot of discussion here, Who, whose kindness is Naomi talking about? The closest antecedent here would be the Lord, right? Blessed be Boaz by Yahweh, because Yahweh has not forsaken the living or the dead. Yahweh has not left our family. Yahweh has not left us out to die. Yahweh's hand is not against us. That's the way I would read that. And for the first time in the book then, we see a a change starting to happen to Naomi. Naomi was bitter and thought God's hand was against her. And now she sees, oh, Yahweh, he's not forsaken us. He's not forsaken our family. We have hope here. We have hope here, Ruth. Verse 21, Ruth the Moabite, don't forget, she's a Moabite. Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, then then Boaz said to me, 'You, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. He said to me, Ruth, stay in my field. Don't go to some other field. Be provided for here. Be protected here. This is the way that favor is being played out. just protection and provision. And so how do you think Naomi responded to that? Verse 22, Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, take the job. It's good, my daughter. It's good that you, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you will be assaulted. Get provision, protection for us there. And so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, that's about two months. So we have almost, they say seven weeks, so about 50 days uh, that she's going to go out and harvest. Now, if she gets the same type of gleaning, about a week's worth of food for two women, she does that for 50 weeks or 50 days, roughly, they're going to have loads of food. I mean, Boaz is abundantly providing for them. Not quite a year's worth of food, but a lot. But nonetheless, at the end of the chapter, we have sort of a cliffhanger because this is a temporal care, right? The harvest is going to end, and then the big question is what's going to happen next, which we'll get to next week. But that's our narrative. That's where we'll end here. It, the, one of the questions I like to ask myself sometimes is if a Bible translation committee called me up or called you up, and they said, hey, we're looking for someone to give titles to passages that are helpful, not like this one that says, Ruth meets Boaz. That helps me a little, right? <laughs> but a helpful title that describes what the author is trying to get across to the audience. What would I title that? What would I, How would I title this passage so that the next reader says, oh, that's what's being... Identified here. What this is what is being emphasized and claimed in the passage. This is what I would say. I would write there, I would say, Boaz extends abundant favor to the undeserving. Favor meaning protection. Provision. Any other place Ruth had showed up, she could have been in a lot of trouble. But Boaz provides abundant provision and protection. And I like the word abundant there because Boaz has gone way above and beyond what was expected in the law to care for a widow or um, the poor. And then the idea of the undeserving, uh, you might unpack that and say the empty-handed. Remember, Ruth provides nothing to Boaz. Boaz is not getting some of the harvest that she gets. She just basically picks up what she wants and then goes home. Boaz gets nothing. She comes with nothing. And she's she's a needy outsider. She is the undeserving in in the equation. Boaz extends abundant favor to the undeserving, is what I would call it. Or you might even say God extends favor. That's the way Naomi seems to read it. Yahweh has not forsaken us. Yes, Boaz is a human agent, but it's God's hessed, God's love, God's covenant care to Naomi and Ruth through Boaz. I think that is quite clear. Hopefully you can see that in the passage, that it jumps off the page for us. But is that message not just simply a model or a miniature picture of the ultimate favor that God extends to the undeserving, right? My, my brother used to do models growing up. You'd like kind of build these little cars. I, I find those to be difficult. A lot of minute details. But you'd build these models, and then and paint them up, and it's a, of a of a certain car or like a Star Wars spaceship thing. Now, nobody would pick up that car and say like that this is the real deal. This this is a picture of a real Corvette or whatever it was. It's just a picture it's pointing us to something this here is just it's just a picture it's just the small echo of the ultimate message of God extending favor to the undeserving see boaz is a picture of someone that's like him but even greater right there's a, gr- a greater boaz there's someone that comes that provides better provision better protection you see boaz boaz was able to provide food temporal food to naomi and ruth but they're eventually going to be hungry again. But Jesus, the Son of God, provides food eternal. That those who eat from him never, th- never are hungry again, never thirst again. Boaz provided protection from man. Jesus protect- uh, provides a much greater protection. You see, Ruth and Mo- uh, Naomi are eventually going to die regardless. They've they got to face someone much bigger than man. They need a great great bigger protection, because they're going to face God on Judgment Day. It's appointed unto man to die once, and then comes judgment. And we all have a much greater problem than the, the dangers of man that we face. It's facing God one day. God will pour out wrath upon sinners for rejecting him and breaking his law. And Jesus comes to die, give his life as a ransom for many. All those who trust in him, God's judgment will fall on him so that we are protected from the wrath of God and brought into the family of God. See, Jesus provides a better protection, a better provision for all those who trust in him. Now, if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Christ, I think this passage then points us to the greater Boaz, the one who provides us that protection and provision. So the question then is, how should we respond? I think the passage is fairly clear that I think we should respond the way Ruth responds, the way Naomi responds. It's with overwhelmed gratitude, right? Ruth discovers the way that Boaz is treating her. She falls on her face in gratitude. Thank you. Why? Why do I deserve this? I don't. Why would you treat me like this? With un or overwhelmed gratitude, but then also full loyalty, to give themselves to uh, Boaz. Now, when I talk when I talk about like gratitude, overwhelmed gratitude, I'm not talking about like some feeling that we need to have. In the same way that you, when you when we think of love, love is not like some feeling that we have to have. The the this warm spot in our belly. It, love is to actually seek the good of another and care for them but it's not always a feeling. Emotions sometimes are there, but sometimes they're not. It's much deeper than that. Right? Uh, the illustration I always talk about is a, a, a parent caring for a two-year-old or a two-month-old at two in the morning, right, who's just had a poopy blowout. Right? The, the parent does not feel a, a warm fuzzy. But there's, a love is way deeper than that. And the gratitude, the overwhelming gratitude, thanksgiving, and worship towards God for, for the protection and provision he gives to us, it's not about a feeling. So we should respond with overwhelming gratitude. The hard part is, you know, we don't have this gratitude zapper where we could just shoot one another and we just always are thankful to the Lord for his care for us, right? If, if, I, if I could, I would, right? And so what do we do? How are we supposed to k- keep fueling that gratitude in our souls? There's different things we can do. If we could just keep it simple, like part, part of the Christian life is simply reminding ourselves of very simple theological realities, right? Who we were, who we are, and where we're headed. Right? Even those things alone can really help us say, yes, Lord, thank you for your care for us. So we'll just walk through that real quick, and then we're done. who who we are who we were we were desperate enemies we weren't only enemies of god that's how we're described we were desperate enemies and remembering that can help us i despise the cold weather some of you know that about me i don't like it any bit and i despise snow when we were almost like when we were there was plans to maybe move to florida i thought thank the Lord, I'll never see snow again because I'm never visiting in the winter. I probably won't even look at it pictures. That's how much I don't like it. And there's nothing in the world that would make me like snow. And you might say, well, can't you go sledding with your kids? And I say, yes. And that is fun, but I'd much rather be swimming with them. There's nothing in the world that would make me love snow. Well, no, I guess there would be something. If so I was falling out of an airplane and 18 inches of snow would save my life. Suddenly, snow is my friend. I'd probably scoop some up, put it, keep it in the freezer and look at it. Might rub it on my face because I love it so much. You see, what happens is, is when we forget how desperate for God's grace we are, it doesn't be, it's not, we don't cherish it. We're not thankful for it. But once we remember, oh man, We were dead in transgressions and sins. We were haters of God. We were his enemies, and we deserved his righteous wrath. We were desperate. We could do nothing to change it, and yet God, in his grace, came running after us. Let us remember that we were desperate enemies, but also who we are. Like We are undeserving children yet today. We don't deserve anything from God. We don't deserve his kindness towards us. We still deserve God's righteous judgment. And yet we are called his children. God has pledged his care for you. If you are blood-bought, if you are one of Christ, God has pledged his fatherly care for you. You enter into this week not as an orphan, but one of God's people. Jesus has promised to be your good shepherd. He hasn't promised us protection from all of life, the hardships, but he has promised to work everything for your good and to care for you as is good for you. And how do we know that? Because he has sealed it with his blood and we partake this morning uh, remembering that the promise rests not on how good we did last week on how good we we're gonna do this week, but solely on the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. So if you're a follower of Christ this morning, we invite you to come forward, partake of the elements. Uh, if, that's, if you're walking in repentant faith, uh, in Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, we ask that you not partake of the elements. Or if you're here and proclaim that you follow Jesus but aren't actually walking in it, we ask that you not partake. Uh, and we ask that you take the time and think. What, what will you do? What will you say when you face God on Judgment Day? But if you're a follower of Christ, we ask you, invite you to come, grab the elements, return to your seat, and we'll, we will partake together. The beloved of God, as we partake of the bread, Receive the promise of God that you have been and will forever be protected from the wrath of God that will rightfully be poured out upon sinners, not because of you, but because of the broken body of Jesus on your behalf. For the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. As we partake of the cup, Receive it as God's promise to you. That he indeed will provide for you for all eternity. One day, all your tears will be wiped away. One day, all the sorrows and the griefs will be gone. And all the struggle and fight against sin and against your flesh will be ended. We will experience it in full, brothers and sisters. For the Lord Jesus, in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying... This cup, it is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me.